That was some good stuff there. Good morning and Merry Christmas to everyone. It is a blessing and a joy to be here uh, on a Sunday morning like this. Um, just want to remind you that today we do have a Christmas Eve service at 5.30. And we would love for you to uh, come along with your family. Uh, it's only probably a 30 to 45 minute service. And it's, uh, it's awesome. We'll sing some Christmas carols. We'll have scripture. And we'll have a time of prayer as well. So today I'm reading out of uh, the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 17, uh, verses 7 through 8. Well, oh, there. I need a new microphone for Christmas. <laughs> and I will establish my covenants between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be to God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Uh, just for the record, I did read all the land of Canaan. It didn't make it to the stream, so uh, verse 8. Here. I'm going to go back here because it's, it's a sweet spot for the microphone. Uh, Father, we are thankful this morning. Uh, thank you for Christmas. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for the peace and the joy that it brings us and the whole world. And we ask that you bless our time together this morning as we worship you and as we are encouraged by the teaching of your word. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Would you now stand with us for a time of worship?
Him whose birth the angels see. Come adore on bended knee. Christ the Lord, the newborn King.
Christmas. This is an opportunity we don't get all the time uh, to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve like this, uh, but we do have everything as expected. Mr. Ferguson is doing much better this week, so we're thankful for that. So children, you get to have children's church. Isn't that exciting? Y'all look almost as excited to stay in a big church last time. You guys can go to children's church. That's what that meant. They looked exactly the same as when I told them there was no children's church last week. I'm not sure if I should take that as a compliment. Uh, yeah, 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 Harley. Come on, man. Gee whiz. All right, well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. That's where we're going to be uh, today. I do want to remind you, um, we don't get this opportunity because it doesn't usually happen on the same day, but... Um, parents of children, we are going to have a live, uh, open, well, not live fire, that's different, open flame, open flame experience tonight. So you may want to have a conversation, depending on how old your children are, as to who's going to participate, because uh, it's a candlelight service, so sometimes I'll just ad admonish you, exhort you a little bit that it, sometimes it avoids misunderstandings, if you could just say, look, you guys are in and you guys are out, right? Yes? No? Uh, it's up to you. Uh, I'm totally fine with it because I'm not, well, I'm just not as risk averse as I ought to be probably. You know what I mean? After, after six kids, uh, you know, we just roll with what we got. You all understand, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, but that's going to be at 530 today. And I want to remind you also that even though we're talking about Christmas today and it's Christmas season and there's a train going by, um, that... Um, that we're having a men's breakfast January 6th, so you want to make sure that you sign up for that, guys, uh, just so we, you know, we can't actually do the loaves and fishes thing on command. We actually need to know how much bacon, how many eggs, and how many biscuits to make, and so Richard will appreciate that since he's cooking for that breakfast. So uh, do that. However, if you've now opened your Bible, Luke chapter 1, let's talk about some Christmas stuff. Can we do that? All right. So we've been spending, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, and so, out of its name, you can tell what we're talking about. We're talking about the advents of Christ. One of them, which we will celebrate tomorrow, the first advent of Christ. Uh, but focusing particularly on the meaning, right, of the first advent, but through the lens of what was expected, right, in the second advent, uh, his future coming. Because you understand that Jesus is coming back, right? And you understand that he's not only coming back for his church in the air for us. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord, right? Today, 
today, now, I don't mind getting interrupted. If he wants to come back, right? Okay, I'll, go. I'll keep going then. It's not happening. It would just be, you know, cool if that happened one time, but it won't happen. I don't have that much pull, you know. But he's coming again in glory, in glory to establish his kingdom, to rule in righteousness, his kingdom on the earth and into eternity. And we're going to continue that today, but it's important that we understand that, right? We, we focus on all sorts of, of details, uh, almost minutia, when, when the impact of the message of Scripture is such that we're supposed to live in expectation of the kingdom, of the coming glory that we will share with Christ in his kingdom. We, we focus... Uh, well, that's really what we call the eschatological view or even the doxological view. Those are big words. It means we're looking to the future in which God's glory is going to be profound and evident on this earth. We're going to continue talking about that. Uh, most of you probably, well, maybe you don't. I, I didn't get very many Christmas decorations up this year. I fully intended to, but after a certain point after Thanksgiving, you know, all you can think about is taking the lights down. Yes? Right? I mean, I'm a redneck, but I ain't that big a redneck. I don't try to leave the Christmas lights up all year. You know what I mean? We, we have them sometimes in the chicken coop, right, to keep the, egg, the eggs coming. But that's different. That's strategic, right? But you probably, even we got the nativity scene up. If you're educated, you call that the crèche. Should we, should we be educated today? Should we just call it nativity? I think we're going to go with nativity scene today. And I have a little baby Jesus sitting on a little table in the foyer. And everybody likes baby Jesus, don't they? Yeah, that's all right. Everybody likes baby Jesus. Uh, baby Jesus doesn't hurt your feelings, right? Yes? I mean, we're not sure about the theology of that hymn we just sang where it says, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I think that's a load of... I think he cried. Crying ain't a sin, right? We know that. But everybody loves baby Jesus. Baby Jesus doesn't hurt your feelings. I mean, my grandson is visiting for a few weeks now. That little baby didn't spend 30 seconds in my lap before he spit up on me. You know what I said? Thank you because I was happy to have my grandson sitting in my lap to be there to spit up on my shirt. Wasn't the first time, won't be the last time. I've dealt with far worse problems than that cute little baby having tummy troubles. I mean, babies can pull that off. We've had babies ruin some white pants in recent weeks just sitting in the back row in the middle of the church. Babies have no respect, but they don't hurt your feelings. Baby Jesus doesn't hurt your feelings. But we talked about this, right? last week out of Zephaniah, what we're expecting is not, we, we remember that Jesus came as an infant, that he was born of a virgin, that he was in sinless perfection. Uh, but even his own mother, before he was born, understood that he was the delivering champion, the saving champion, the coming king, and that is why you celebrate the baby. That's why you celebrate the baby. He's King Jesus. And unlike a baby Jesus who doesn't hurt your feelings and doesn't tell you what to do or how to, how to act, King Jesus does. Yes? Because even if a baby has a rod of iron in his hand, what do you do? You take it away. 
Yes? Yeah. You don't want a baby with a rod of iron. He'll damage himself and others with it. But King Jesus rules with a rod of iron righteously. That's what Scripture teaches us. He's the one in whom all of God's promises are fulfilled. To you, to me, to Israel. And his own mother recognized that significance. God's faithfulness in providing it through her to the nation of Israel. And I, I think we have a tendency sometimes as, as non-Catholics to swing too far the other way. Yeah? We don't go, we don't venerate Mary, but we should not denigrate Mary either, should we? Because Scripture says that generation, she recognized generations upon generations, every generation will call me blessed. A righteous, righteous young woman. Godly young woman. Uh, and I think we, we, in responding to some incorrect doctrines, we make some other incorrect doctrines, right? We, we know that Scripture doesn't teach that Mary was sinless, that her conception was immaculate is the way that they say it. She was not born that way. But she was righteous, she was faithful. She knew her Bible very, very well, as we'll see here. She knew her Bible extremely well. She knew about God's plan for Israel. She knew about Israel's hope and expectation. She knew that it was future in a way. Mary was a, a dispensationalist. Now that's going to make all sorts of twisted knickers if somebody happens to watch a stream that isn't a dispensationalist. What that means is she knew who Israel was, and she knew that Israel's future was in God's hand and is absolute and guaranteed. And it's unpolluted by ambiguity. We say that. Do you know what I mean? Israel does not share the glory that God has designed for Israel because God does not share the glory that is given to him. And in order for his glory to be brought about perfectly, he must perfectly keep his promise to Israel, and he must perfectly keep the promises that he's given to us. God is only bound by his own word and his own promise. We don't venerate her, but we are right to call her blessed, right? It's a hard task that she was given. We're going to look at her song today, what people have traditionally called the Magnificat. That's appropriate. And we're actually, I think it says 47. We're going to start in 46. 47 is the traditional spot. I don't know why that is. 46 is where we're going to start. It, it's almost entirely a recitation of how God has worked uh, throughout Israel's history. Much of it seems to overlap and parallel what Hannah sang about her son Samuel, which tells you that she valued the Old Testament, even if you have trouble doing that. I hear that a lot when I teach on the Old Testament. That was their Bible. So when we say they knew their Bible well, that Scripture was profitable, that's what they were using, that's how how it was. She recites for herself and for, in very difficult circumstances, she had essentially fled her community to stay with her cousin Elizabeth. She fled. I, I, I mean, we like to tell, oh, she went to go visit her cousin. Isn't that nice? Um, I, th I think her neighborhood was tough on her at the time. And it was for her own well-being 
possibly to save her life that she went to stay with her cousin, Elizabeth, who was also, by the way, miraculously expecting a son, a promised son. But she understood the, the significance of her son before he was even born. I would point out in our culture now that that would be impossible if she understood her son to be literally just a clump of her own cells parasitizing her body. Yes? That's what we're told is happening. A story for another day. But she understood in utero that God was covenant-keeping even with this baby growing inside of her. But we're going to start at the end. Start doing this a little more. Sometimes it helps us. Verse 54 of chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Now, we often read this portion of Luke as to Josh and to Josh forever. Yeah? We read the Bible devotionally as if the whole thing is written to me and is about me going to heaven when I die. Let me tell you something, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a far better theologian than you are. Far better biblical scholar than we are because she doesn't do that. Now, does it have application to you and me? Absolutely. Is it a perfect application to you and me? Yes, that's fine. But understand that in this difficult circumstance that she was in where she had fled her own community, possibly to preserve her own life, the things that brought her comfort were the fact that God is faithful to his covenant and would bring about an entire perfect fulfillment to the nation through her son. And it was the thing they had expected since Abraham. To Abraham and his descendants forever. As Jacob read to you also, that included a number of blessings, including the land, by the way. And we understand that part of God's covenant to Israel is the land. We understand at El Paso Bible Church, if we are the only ones for hundreds of miles around us, even so. And we might be, from what I can tell. <laughs> that the only reason that Israel occupies the promised land is because God placed them there. When God wants them out, he takes them out. And when God wants them in, he places them in. And so we are unabashedly supporters of Israel at all times unapologetically. Mary was. She understood the covenant. She understood that it was to be fulfilled in Christ and that it was a fulfillment and not just a partial, ambiguous, subjective thing. But she knew about this baby. She knew that he was Israel's help, the one who would bear up Israel. That's the idea is God's mercy on Israel that tells you that they deserve something else. Because that's what everybody always brings out. Well, Israel is doing bad things to people. Israel is not perfect. Yes? No? Has anyone, have I ever said that? In fact, I've said the opposite. And we ought to be thankful for that, by the way. Because you are God's child even when you're apostate. 
Israel is God's covenant nation, even when they are apostate. The covenant that is unconditionally given to them is perfectly kept by God for his sake and his sake alone. And Mary understands that. She's living in an apostate generation. You study the way the priesthood was operating during Mary's lifetime. It was almost non-existent. It's a matter of God's mercy to them. And it's forever. It's not contingent on anything. It's not conditioned on anything. And again, we ought to be thankful for that. Your possession of your identity in Christ is also not conditioned on your continued behavior. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. When I'm a butthead, I don't get to go to hell. See, I can do that to myself. I wouldn't call you that. But I can be a butthead, especially on Mondays. Mondays are tough butthead days for me. How many times can I get that on the recording, huh? Still God's child. Israel is God's covenant people. Mary understood that, that it was forever, that it was perfect, absolute. She's a better Bible student than we are. She sees the entirety of God's plan, including his plan for Israel. She sees the land, she sees the seed, she sees the blessing, she sees the forever. You know, and, and most of the time we read the Bible, frankly, we read the Bible like unbelievers. We read the, like it's all about going to heaven when we die. You understand that that's the one thing that God wants the unbeliever to understand out of Scripture. That's appropriate. But you're supposed to get past that. You're supposed to get past that. Because she sees the kingdom to come with her son ruling as king, undeserved by Israel, but graciously inexorable. I have to, I had to graciously there. When I say something is inexorable, what does that sound like to you? My wife could have said that to my children at various junctures. Your father's coming is inexorable. She usually wouldn't have smiled when she said that. Your father's coming is inexorable, children. But this is gracious. This is inexorable favor that is to come on Israel. She sees the kingdom graciously inexorable coming in her son. Now we can go back up here. And Mary said, verse 46, my soul, my life, my suke, exalts the Lord, the master, right? She's not referring to him by his personal name there. That's kurios, saying he's the boss. I have submitted to what he has said I'm going to do. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. She is rejoicing, remember, in the midst of her own personal exile. In the midst of her own personal exile, she's rejoicing. 
It was not intrinsically joyful to be pregnant out of wedlock. We may not be able to comprehend that in a world that tries to tell us that men can have babies, right? You, don't, you miss the impact of the story if you go down that road, but y'all aren't that dumb, right? Only like a third of y'all said no. Y'all aren't that dumb. So we don't have to go down that road. Difficult. But she's rejoicing specifically because God has blessed her in her humiliation in the humble state, according to, to the way people viewed her. Why was she humbled? Why was she in a humble state? She was of the line of David. She was of the line of David. But she was in this exile with her cousin. She is a godly and faithful individual woman. She trusts in the message that God has provided her through the angels. Her husband has remained faithful to her betrothed husband. Why is she humbled? through no fault of her own. Right? The apostasy that had brought the line of David off of the throne in Jerusalem was generations old. And yet God bestowed mercy on the line in her own generation. She is godly and faithful. She understood who God is, what God had guaranteed we looked at Zephaniah last week that he would provide that saving champion to Israel. And she's in a humble state. It sounds better to say humble than humiliated. I think both are actually true and both could be true here. Alienated by her community. She was of the line of David. She was engaged to a woodworker. Betrothed to a woodworker. I happen to be a woodworker. Nothing special compared to a king. She's not particularly exalted at the time. Her state was humble. Her finances were humble. Her position was humble. She's from a little town. At least it's not an emergency alert this week. <laughs> I want to let you know, this, is, this was unique, and I don't know what is happening. You know, we don't have a lot of views on Sermon Audio. I'm no rock star. The last three weeks, our views for this same period have gone up by more than 10 times for the last three weeks, particularly on the sermons where we were discussing the coming kingdom of Israel. So that may sound like a great thing to you, but most of them are coming from Europe. So who knows what kind of political leanings those folks have. It could be an emergency alert was my point for some people, talking about the kingdom the way that we do. She was able to look forward from her generation, right? That's the, the preposition that she uses. She's not talking about her own generation. She's talking generations away from Appa, 
in the distance. She would be called by all generations that were future because in her own generation, she was humiliated, humble, and shamed. In the future, looking back in hindsight from where we are, we call her blessed, that God's blessing comes to her by way of humility and faithfulness, and that generations to come would bless her for it. And by the way, we, we need to understand when she says all, she means all. So in other words, this, this fulfillment of her self-prophecy is not fulfilled yet, is it? Does everyone of every generation right now call Mary blessed? No. See, this is like you and for me. God promises us glorification in the future, but it's not now. That's the dichotomy. If you seek glory now, you get less glory later. That's how that goes. That's how that goes. It's tied to the glorification and the coming in glory of Jesus Christ. When we see Mary looking to the future and seeing the blessing and the glory that's to come to her, she is looking at it as tied to Jesus. <laughs> When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord, the same way that she has just done. Mary is still waiting for that day, but she is confident that it is coming and rejoicing that it is coming. Verse 49 says this, For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm, and he has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their throne and has exalted those who were humble. Now, language like that is all over the place in, in the Old Testament, and oftentimes it's referring to Israel's enemies. That is not what Mary is talking about, is it? She's talking about her own history in Israel. The narrative of what happened, how it was that she came to be in a humbled state, he has done those things. He took the people out of the land. He brought them out of the land. He is responsible for bringing this fulfillment of this covenant, and he has done it because his mighty power wanted it done. It's all him. Now, will the corollary be to that, that all of Israel's enemies will be defeated? Yes. Will it be mighty power? Yes. Will it be mighty deeds by God himself? Yes. But that's not what Mary is recording. She is recording for you the absolute justice and grace that is involved in God's working in Israel, who can bring a dynasty to a throne, off of a throne, and back to a throne in righteous rule through mighty power. This is exactly what he did to Israel. He's done merciful deeds. His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Now you'll find sometimes people will get, they get irritated when you say you should fear God. Can you believe such a thing? The Bible, I don't even know how many times the Bible says that you should fear God. And yet they'll say, I don't think I should fear God at all. Jacob loves it when I make that voice. He's got a log for that too, apparently. Guys, you can't get away from that. 
you are supposed to fear God. What does fear God mean? Well, it's directly parallel to worshiping God. And you can tell if somebody stands up and says, children of God in Christ Jesus shouldn't fear God, you can tell that they're not very well educated, to be honest. It's like when you use the word alien and someone says that, I'm, that, that no human is an extraterrestrial. Yeah? That's what you get here on the border. That's not what alien means. An extraterrestrial is an alien, but not all aliens are extraterrestrials. Is that okay? It has to be okay because that's what the word means. I'm not, you don't get any wiggle room on this. Fear God in the Bible means simply to worship him and him alone. That was the problem in the period of the judges and the period of Samuel, that they, period of Josiah. They had idols occupying the same space as they're supposed to be worshiping Yahweh in, in the temple. And they wondered what the problem was. They didn't fear God and worship him alone. Israel is told to fear God. The church, 1 Peter 2, 17 Believers in Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit are told to fear God, to worship him and to worship him alone. And God is uh, faithful and merciful to every generation that does that. He's done merciful things. He has worked mightily in Israel's history by scattering those who are proud, those who refuse to fear him, those who are proud. And Mary's told you she's a better theologian than most people she says this get this right he has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart now how many times in your life have you been told that you need to have some sort of heart knowledge instead of head knowledge yeah cheap chicken bologna Cheap chicken bologna, the cheapest, the bar S. You don't even know what part of the chicken is in that hot dog or bologna. It could be the chicken claws for all you know. That's that kind of Bible doctrine. In the Bible, the head and the heart are things you think with and the things that you trust with. Slight difference in reference. They were proud in the thoughts of their heart. It's not even an interpretation. It's because sometimes when, when the Bible says heart, what it means is colon. So that even throws your American theology all for all out of whack. What do I do with it? Don't, I know what I do with my colon, and it ain't thinking. <laughs> but this is cardia. This is the thumper, right, the ticker, the thing that you hope keeps ticking for more decades, right? That's how that goes. The thoughts of their heart. He scattered them, scattered Israel because they behaved pridefully and didn't fear God towards their delivering champion. He divests rulers of their thrones. He struck the son of David off the throne and broke the line and restored it through a different line in Mary and Joseph. He exalts those who are humble. He's brought down rulers from the thrones. He exalted those who were humble. Mary, I've been humbled. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant. He does things unexpectedly. 
the gracious coming of the Savior is graciously inexorable, but also astounding in the way that it takes place. He's merciful from generation to generation. The same line, Mary's line, the scattered line, the dethroned line, an undeserving line was the recipient of God's grace. He's merciful to generation after generation for the sake of Abraham. For the sake of Abraham. No contingencies, no substitutes, no assignments. Nothing to Abraham and his descendants forever. He works through astonishing circumstances. He gives good things to the malnourished. Let me compare government with you, right? Because a lot of people are under the impression that government does good things for people. Only one person left. That's a funny joke. You guys should all be laughing. The government doesn't always do as badly as it could. Is that charitable enough? I think that's as good as I can get. When the government identifies malnourishment, they send them bags of beans and rice. And people riot over it. You've seen the videos, I'm sure. When God identifies the malnourished among his covenant people, he gives them good and beautiful things. Like the prime rib or the turkey or the ham you will have on your table. The abundance. Mary sees that. The staple was simply pita bread, essentially. When we find people's teeth that ground their wheat in stones, remember? They would chip out the bottom stone out of the ground and then they would have the little stone on the top. That's the one that got dropped on people's heads in the Old Testament. Yay, God, right? That's how, somehow, sometimes how their enemies were defeated was some, a woman dropped a millstone on the guy, right? Love stories like that. Such creative women in the Old Testament. There's always a woman that does this. Stake through the head, millstone on the head. I'm pro that kind of woman. No question that they were women, guys. But when we find that they've lived a lifetime of this, you know, we don't find decay in their teeth. What we find is literally they were ground down, like if they had taken their teeth and run them on a, on a bench grinder. That's what Mary likely had grown up on. <laughs> some sorts of small amounts of protein and bread like that. And, but when she saw God fulfilling, she understood the nature of the covenant, that they would live in houses that they did not build. They would ferment wine from vineyards they didn't plant that were centuries old, that they would harvest from crops that they didn't cultivate. She knew what that meant about the future, that the future was far more glorious, far more glorious than they had ever seen. And those who were humbled, those who were hungry, would have a fullness of good things in the future to come. And she was able, from her circumstance, to see that and to embrace it and to be encouraged by it. 
and you sent away the rich empty-handed. No. Y'all are all rich. Yeah? Y'all realize that you're like in the top 5% just by virtue of being here in the whole world. Yeah? Well, read this contextually. Right? Jesus had rich friends. He didn't uh, have a problem with that. He was with a rich man in his death. That was prophetic, was it not? Understand where Mary's coming from. (laughs) There were no rich Jewish people in her context. This is a statement of covenant fulfillment. She's going to bring down the oppressors. See, you you were not familiar with that. Uh, Capitalism didn't exist. Capitalism allowed for people to make wealth without stealing and murdering people, historically speaking. They still do it because it's still faster to steal from people and to kill them for their stuff. But capitalism at least made it possible. It didn't exist back then. The theory didn't even exist. But it's an inversion, right, of the fortunes of Israel. Israel was suffering. Israel was humiliated. Israel was humbled, just like Mary Functionally, they were in some measure of exile. They were a vassal state under the empire of Rome, even though they occupied their land. And their fortunes would be restored, like we talked about last week. By God's grace and by God's mercy, not because they deserved it. Never because they deserved it. Is Israel back in the land today because they deserved it? No. What's the only other option? God's grace, God's mercy, his protection, his provision. He has given help to Israel, his servant. Here we are back at the end. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. forever. She knew all this. She had never seen her baby's face. Isn't it cool what we can do now? We can almost pretend to chub those baby cheeks before they're even born with the level of imaging that we have. You know? She'd never seen him. She had never lived under the monarchy from which she was descended. She had never seen the golden era of Israel. She had never seen a righteous ruler. She had never lived in wealth. Had never seen the nation stream to Israel, to Jerusalem, to worship the one true God. She had never seen any of that. She was in her own personal exile probably in many people's presumption, guilty of what was a capital crime in Israel. But she was able to look to the future and rejoice that God had sent his son to be born of her, a virgin, who would bear our debt to the cross, who rose from the dead, who ascended to the right hand of the Father, 
Never ever to be confused with the throne of David, by the way. It's never called that. The right hand of the Father is the right hand of the Father. And who is coming again soon. First for his bride. I'll wait a second here. Again. Okay. First for his bride. Us. One of the privileges of being believers in Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit is that he has to get our butts out of the way in order to finish the program. Because as powerless as you feel, you are a significant part of the presence of the Spirit in this world. And as little as I feel like I do on a daily basis, <laughs> God apparently thinks otherwise for the church, for us, and our impact in the world. Coming for his bride first. And then he's coming to rule. Through the millennium and into eternity. So why have we spent all this time talking about that last few weeks? Because that's what we should focus on. Enjoy your meal. Enjoy your family. Uh, was it a couple of years ago, Christmas actually fell on a Sunday. And I was having a hard time finding churches that were actually having services on Sunday. Not that it mattered. I was going to be here. You know, just trying to figure out who was in the club. It's hard to find some. Because Christmas was all about family, they said. Can I say it again? That's cheap chicken bologna. It has benefits to your family. You know why it has benefits to your family? Because Christ offers life to you. Christ offers life to you. And with life, you can be a blessing to your family on Christmas and other days of the year. He is the only reason. Did anything you do in this life matters at all? And so glorify him with your family this Christmas. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for Mary's faithfulness. Your son's own words later in his ministry, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, and Mary presents us with that precedent. She believed. She had no ability to see apart from your previously revealed word and the message given directly to her. And we thank you for her example of faithfulness. And we call her blessed today as we celebrate that coming of your son, the incarnation of your son, to, to grant us simply as a gift by grace through faith this life that we possess in him. We thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Will you join us this morning as we close our service? And please join us again this evening at 5.30 for our candlelight service.
Christmas Eve. Hope to see you tonight. <laughs>